0: Have you ever been asked a question, an important question, but a question that forces you to choose between two very different answers? Uh, a question where your response really matters, and it reveals what you really believe. Given give an example, perhaps you've done jury duty. It's something that I've not personally experienced, the joy of, but... From what I do know, uh, as a member of the jury, you're required to decide whether a person on trial is guilty or not guilty. It's a question where your response really matters. Or perhaps you're at work, having lunch with a number of colleagues, and that contentious issue comes up again. Your instinct might be just to keep your head down but then the one person you you want to impress but you know won't agree with your opinion looks you squarely in the eye and says, but what do you think? What do you say? Do you tell the truth or lie? It's a question where your response can really matter. As Langs has said, this summer we're looking at the miracles of the Messiah looking at some of the key miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark introduces his Gospel with the words that we've said, that, he is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the narrative that follows is clearly meant to confirm his identity. How each miracle provokes a response, and in each miracle, Jesus' true identity is made clearer and clearer and clearer for us. This keeps going until we reach Mark 8, where Jesus looks Peter squarely in the eye and says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus is incredible at asking questions. And what's profound is that this question, although originally directed at Peter, can also be asked of us. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus asked us. Your response to Jesus matters. And it's a question with only two answers to choose from. Is Jesus the Messiah, God in human form, the one to save the world, or isn't he? You see, we must give an answer. There's no sitting on the fence. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you're so, so welcome here at Townshirts this afternoon. But I wonder how you would respond to this question. Do you think Jesus really is who he claimed to be? Is Jesus really the Messiah? The person you need more than any other in your life? Or is he mad? Is he a liar? Who has tricked billions of people into believing that he was God? For those who are Christians you might be quick to respond, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, of course. And that's right, that's good. But Jesus wants to go deeper. It's as if he's asking, but what do you really believe? Does your life reflect what you say you believe about me? Does the way you live say, Jesus, you're the Messiah I need every day? And Is your life marked by humility, accepting that you need help, and putting your faith in Jesus alone to meet that need? For those who do, they're people full of joy and hope, whose identity is so secure that they can seem to deal with any kind of criticism without it destroying them. Or does the way you live say, Jesus, you're not the Messiah, I need every day? Is your life Life marked by pride, still acknowledging that you need help, but looking to yourself or somewhere else other than Jesus to fulfill it. Those who do are people who are, well, miserable and stressed, whose identity is so fragile that they can't cope with anyone challenging them. This is why our response to Jesus matters. It's not just about a correct answer. But how that answer impacts our lives. Therefore the plan is to spend the next six Sundays. Exploring Jesus' miracles and claims. And the first of these miracles we find in Mark chapter 2. So please uh, look down at verse, uh, to chapter 2. Um, and it kind of goes without saying. That all these miracles. All of Jesus' miracles. Are absolutely extraordinary. Like that's kind of the nature of miracles. Right? But to me. Uh, This is one of the most extraordinary because it's so bizarre. For context, it takes place in a town called Capernaum, which is about 100 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And already, Jesus' reputation has grown massively. Let's look down at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. News of Jesus' preaching and healing had spread like wildfire and crowds of people come. Why? Well, perhaps it's just natural curiosity or to hear him preach or maybe they're desperate desperate for Jesus to help them. Then verse three, look down. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the the mat the man was lying on. Now, clearly, here are some men who will stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. Their plan is so bizarre. Because imagine, just imagine, imagine if it happened here this afternoon. I'm preaching, you're listening, uh, everything's going okay. And then you hear a scraping sound, I don't know, round about there. You catch the eye of the person sitting next to you thinking, yep, did did you just hear that as well? Uh, And then the hole starts to get bigger uh, and... And by this point, kind of we've all just, we've all stopped what we're doing, all looking up and having a look. The hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's dust everywhere until it's big enough for a man lying on a mat to be lowered here in front of us. By this point, I would imagine some of us will be phones out recording it, because it'd be like, What on earth is this going what on earth is going on? Uh, and if Neil, the school caretaker, was here, he'd probably be yelling at them. It really is quite mad. But it happened. So why did these men go through all that trouble? Perhaps you know someone who suffers from paralysis or is experiencing a kind of suffering that makes you feel just so frustrated that you're unable to take it away. It's no surprise, therefore, that when these men heard that Jesus was in town, they wouldn't let anything stop them from getting their suffering friend to Jesus. And what did they want from him? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Everyone knows. The crowd knows. We know. But it seems that Jesus doesn't know. Because what does he say? Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. If you were this man, what would your response be? Uh, what? Wow. Uh, okay, well it's very kind of you, Jesus. But isn't it obvious that I've got a more immediate problem here? What is Jesus doing? If Jesus can meet this man's need and end his suffering, why doesn't he just heal him? If only he could just walk again, then everything would be alright. Right? Here's what he's doing. Jesus looks at the man and effectively says, you think you know what your deepest need is in life, but you don't. I know you're suffering, dealing with things that aren't your fault, and I'll address that later. But you have a much deeper need. Jesus has the power to end this man's suffering. But in this moment, he's making it very, very clear that this man's deepest need isn't physical healing, but to experience a healing that goes much, much deeper. If you're taking notes, here's our first point. Our deepest need. Now, we've got to be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. He is not making light of this man's suffering. With infinite compassion, he would have understood the pain he was experiencing and the way that society would have sidelined him. And it's the same with us. When suffering feels inescapable, it can cause us to question God or leaving us feeling like no one else understands us. But Jesus doesn't make light of that either. Jesus knows your pain. Because he knows you and soon he himself would endure unimaginable pain and suffering for us. Jesus has the power to end this man's suffering. But he wants everyone to know that there is something more significant even than suffering. That healing this man's legs... Just wouldn't go deep enough. For most of us, we have working legs. But whether it's suffering or something else, we have felt needs that just feel so real to us. I wonder what they are for you. Complete the following. Everything would be alright if only I could be I'd be happy if I just had... What is it for you? To have financial security? To be cool or more attractive? To have your idea of the perfect family? Or perhaps it's just to have a rest... (laughs) Rest from worry, that thing in your life that just makes you feel so anxious about all the time. Rest from physical pain, or having to live with that mental illness that just keeps rearing its ugly head. Or rest from the weariness that comes from the relentless demands of being a parent. Or that job that just seems to be all stress and no joy. Perhaps you know that you can't escape these things entirely. But if only you could just have a break from them. Just for a little bit. Imagine if I could give you a month, let's say. A month in your favourite part of the world. A month holiday away from those concerns. Just imagine that. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? But the temptation would be to think, "Oh, if I could just have that, then I'd be able to cope afterwards. But would you be able to go? Would it satisfy? Would it last? Many of you would have heard me talk about my colleague and friend Toby. We've been friends for eight years. And one of the things you need to know about Toby is that he loves cars and motorbikes. Likes buying them, selling them, taking them apart, building engines. He loves them but the car that he's always wanted since he was a little boy was an Aston Martin for years he would look at photos he'd posters spot them on the street read up on them he absolutely loved one he loved them and he was hoping one day that he would have his own and about 18 months ago uh, a friend of his died and thinking life was too short he bought one you can imagine he was very very excited he might have even seen it in the car park when his wife came to town church a year ago on Sunday. Unfortunately, he doesn't know Jesus. But as I know him quite well, whilst out on a drive, I asked him, now you've got it. Does it satisfy you? What do you think he said? He said, quite honestly, no. No. And he he tried to rationalise it by saying it drove him to wanting the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But the obvious question then was, well, what's the end of all of that? It's as if his felt need didn't go deep enough. Coming back to this passage, we see this paralysed man and think, oh, if only he could walk again, then everything would be all right. But unfortunately, we underestimate the depths of the longings of our heart. We always want more and therefore we don't see that there's actually a bigger need, a bigger problem. The main problem in this paralyzed man's life is not his suffering, but his sin. The main problem in our lives isn't stress or suffering or even satisfaction. No, it's, uh, it's that for, for our sin to be forgiven. Now I realize that is a very bold thing for me to say, but that's what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't take much for us to admit that things aren't right about us. The Bible makes it very clear that none of us are perfect, and I, very few of us would disagree with that. But the Bible makes it very clear that our moral situation is actually far worse. You see, we were created by a loving God, a holy God, and designed to be in relationship with Him. That's where humans flourish. But sin entered the world as mankind turned its back on God. We've rejected him and put ourselves in charge of our own lives. And this is what sin is. So what what position does that put us in? Well, it means our relationship with God is broken. And the penalty is death and eternal separation from him and all his goodness. Therefore, what we need is for our sins to be forgiven and that relationship to be restored. With our loving Maker. It's tempting to think we can make ourselves morally acceptable, right? We try, we try, we try some more, but no amount of good deeds will ever go deep enough. So, what we need is for someone from the outside who has the power to reach down to those depths and forgive our sin and restore our relationship with God. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is your reality. You need to face it. As harsh as it sounds, this is your current state. This is your deepest need. And, Christian, where are you looking for fulfilment? Where are you saying, oh, if only I could just have, then I'll be happy. What do you believe will fulfil you? when thinking about forgiveness and fulfilment, why does the question, who do you say Jesus is, matter? Because he's the Messiah. He's the only one who can diagnose what our deepest need is and the only one who can fulfil it. Do you believe that's true? Or are you looking to something or someone else to fulfil you, to forgive you? Your response to Jesus matters. So, we've heard from Jesus that we have a deeper need. And now, in the second half of this passage, we see how he proves he is our Messiah who meets it. Let's read from verse 5. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These Jewish leaders had heard of Jesus' reputation, and this is the first time it's recorded in the Gospels that they actually check Jesus out for themselves. But when Jesus says to this man, "Son, your sins are forgiven," how do they react? They're outraged. They are so angry. Why? Well, they know uh, well, they knew from their Old Testaments that only God could forgive sin, and they're right, right? Imagine if Lanks, uh, imagine if he punched Byron. Now, don't worry, this is just an illustration. I'm not, I don't actually think you would. But imagine if Lanks punched Byron. And then I came over and said, oh, don't worry, Lanks, don't worry, I forgive you. I forgive you. So, okay, it's done, it's done. You'd be like, Pete, you can't forgive Lanks. Only Byron can forgive Lanks, right? Because Byron was the one that got punched. When Jesus looks at this man and affectionately says, Son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, All your sins have been against me. And the only person who can say that is their creator. Right? Do you see what Jesus is saying to this paralyzed man? Jesus is claiming to be his creator and God, Jesus is claiming to be his Messiah. His Saviour, willing and able to forgive his sins. But these Jewish leaders, they were waiting for the Messiah. So why are they so angry with Jesus rather than bowing down to him? Put simply, they refused to believe that Jesus was God because Jesus did not fit their idea of a Messiah. A miracle worker, maybe. But not God, not this humble carpenter from the backwater village of Nazareth. But the issue isn't with Jesus, it was with them. They weren't humble enough to accept the fact that this man in front of them was truly their Messiah. Knowing this, how does Jesus respond? Well, verse eight, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? The fact that Jesus has the ability to know what they were silently thinking is kind of a miracle in itself. But then Jesus breaks the silence and starts quizzing them. Why are you thinking these things? He starts. And then he asks the most brilliant question. Verse nine. Which is easier, to say to this this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say... Get up, up, take your mat, and walk. What would you say is easier? At first glance, the answer seems to be, your sins are forgiven, right? Because anyone can say those words, but not anyone can look into the eyes of a man and say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And it happened. Then what does Jesus say next? Verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus doesn't need to heal this man. But he wants people to know who he is. That he's the Messiah, the Son of of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. The only one who has the power to meet our deepest need. You see, it all hangs on who jesus is it all hangs on his identity if jesus really is who he claims to be then he is the only one who can save us can forgive us this is why his which is easier question is so brilliant because there's more than one answer you see throughout the bible when god says something it happens his saying and doing are synonymous so when Jesus says to this man, "Your sins are forgiven," he's not just saying it. He's doing it. He's doing something, something that is infinitely harder that is healing than healing this man's legs. Friends, any miracle worker can say, "Take up your bed and walk." But only the Savior of the world can say, "All your sins are forgiven." Jesus is pointing to the cross. He knows it's going to be so much harder to forgive a person's sin than to heal a man's legs. But Jesus knows that if he heals this man, he will trigger a chain of events that will lead to his crucifixion at the hands of these Jewish leaders. So what does he do? Well, clearly he cares more about proving his identity than about saving his own life. Verse 11. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Hmm. Jesus healed him. With such compassion, he healed him. But it was for a bigger purpose. One writer puts it like this. Jesus knew that by healing this man's legs, his legs would be nailed to a cross. Jesus knew that by enabling this man to dance, he would die. His eventual death might have looked like a mistake, but it's the very means by which this man and us can be forgiven. The very means by which our Messiah can meet our deepest need. You see, God can't let sin slide he wouldn't be a good judge if he just said, Don't worry, we all make mistakes, it doesn't matter. No, we're all guilty. And if you were on jury duty, you wouldn't vote not guilty for a confessed murderer, even if he was remorseful. That's why Jesus had to die to take the punishment for us so that we can be declared not guilty, so that we can be declared free. So who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. By healing this paralyzed man and ultimately by his death and resurrection, Jesus proves that he alone can meet our deepest need. That he alone can forgive you, fulfill you, and set you free. So what is your response to Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today, I implore you to come to Jesus because he wants to deal with your deepest need. You might be feeling like the crowd did in verse 12. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Whether you're amazed at Jesus or you're feeling something else, Jesus is asking you this afternoon, who do you say am? It's a question that requires a response. And it matters. There is no sitting on the fence. So don't be like the Jewish leaders who were too proud to accept Jesus and his offer of forgiveness, who effectively said to, the, said to Jesus, not my Messiah. Stop looking elsewhere for fulfilment and purpose. Your life might seem okay now, but when you die, the forgiveness that Jesus offers will not be available to you. By then it will be too late. Instead, humbly accept Jesus in faith and say to him, Jesus, you're the Messiah I need. Because he knows you. He's ready to fulfill your deepest need for forgiveness and to transform your life. Don't wait. Jesus is ready to look you in the eye this afternoon and say, daughter, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. So put your trust in Jesus today as your Messiah. In his sermon on this passage, Tim Keller helpfully summarises Jesus' words, saying, I am the only saviour that when you get me, will fulfil you. And when you fail me, will forgive you. Let me say that again. I am the only saviour that when you get me, will fulfil you. And when you fail me, will forgive you. If you're already trusting in Jesus, where do these words hit home for you? Where are you tempted to believe that Jesus isn't enough to fulfil you? what need feels so strong that if you got it then everything would be okay what does your mind tend to drift back to when you lie awake at night what do you tend to envy in other people what do you find yourself praying that is nowhere promised in the bible what is that one thing that, if you told, were told you could never have it, would make, you feel, make your life feel not worth living. It's heavy, but if the Spirit has highlighted an area in your life, your response to Jesus here matters. And what we have in him is so much better. Either you say to Jesus, not my Messiah, or you accept him, Humbly and enjoy him and say, yes, Jesus, you're the Messiah I need. And when you do, then you can truly enjoy everything else because you're not relying on them to fulfill you. Therefore, come humbly to Jesus and see that he is all that you need and he will fill you with joy. That's fulfillment. But what about forgiveness? Where are you tempted to believe that Jesus' forgiveness isn't enough for you? Maybe you struggle with guilt and shame. You believe that your failures are too great to feel confident that Jesus truly loves you, forgives you and accepts you. Maybe you feel like your faith is just too weak. If that's you, come to Jesus, like this paralyzed man did. But you see, faith is not a gift. It is a virtue. This man only created an opening in the roof because Jesus had first created an opening in his heart. And once at the feet of Jesus, Jesus saw their faith and flooded this man's life with complete forgiveness, aggressive grace almost, and love and acceptance, all of it. So it doesn't matter how weak or strong your faith is, but what or rather who, your faith is in. So as we take communion, come humbly to the feet of Jesus and say, you're the Messiah I need. Remember that his forgiveness is complete and his acceptance of you is secure, not because of you, but because of him. Or maybe this disbelief expresses itself by being slow to admit your sin or by trying to... Uh, Pay for it yourself. I know this is true for me, particularly when it comes to admitting my failures. When my wife, Esther, points out my sin to me, as she should, my natural response is to justify myself. What's happening in my heart at that moment? Well, I'm saying of Jesus, not my Messiah. And I'm being proud. I'm believing the lie that my deepest need is to look pretty sorted. And when I feel like that is in jeopardy, the last thing I want to do is admit that I've done wrong. And what makes it worse is when I'm already starting to see my four-year-old daughter Margot react in the same way. It's awful. I'm like, please don't be like me. But when I look to Jesus as my Messiah, the one who created me and knows just how sinful my heart is, and yet, and yet, he still chooses to love me to die for me, to forgive me. That changes everything. It means I can feel secure. So when people challenge me, my immediate response isn't to defend myself. It means I can humbly say yes when I'm in the wrong. I can say sorry. It means that we can model this to our children, reassuring them that we're not perfect either. Friends, whoever you are, Uh, Jesus knows that uh, Jesus knows your deepest need and he stands with arms wide open and invites us to come to him and know him as our Messiah your response to Jesus matters so accept his invitation by faith now, let's pray Father we thank you for Jesus we thank you that he is the only saviour who when we get him fulfills us and when we fail him forgives us. Please, Father, please forgive us where we need your forgiveness and Father, please give us faith to humbly accept Jesus into every area of our lives. Father, please encourage us now as we take communion as we rejoice in your complete forgiveness found in your son in whose name we pray. Amen.